Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightses. Thank you for listening. Long before satellite radio, streaming services, and podcasts, an underground radio station could wield power in its community. In Boston, That station was WBCN, and for people who came of age during the protests and social movements of the 1960s and 70s, WBCN was a soundtrack for their lives. WBCN and the American Revolution is a documentary chronicling the impact of this station. We'll hear from the filmmaker later this hour. Indie folk singer-songwriter Elliot Bronson describes his new album as an unabashed breakup recording. He'll discuss writing his way through sadness, and he'll play some of those songs which helped him heal. First, Articulate Atlanta is an annual urban art social that aims to bring art and culture enthusiasts together. But how does one have a social during pandemic? Esohe Galbraith is the co-founder of Urban Art Expression and Articulate ATL. She joins us now with artist Danielle Rideau. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. Thank you. First, for listeners unfamiliar with the annual art social, how would you describe it? We have attempted to connect um, some of the most talented local to Atlanta, emerging artists to emerging collectors in a fun-filled night full of music and cocktails and delicious light bites. And how did you get involved with Articulate ATL? About eight years ago, I guess, (laughs) or a little over eight years ago, because this is our eighth iteration, my husband and I came together with our partners, Brandon Ball and Courtney Ware, and decided that we wanted to have an art party 
but at this art party, art would be the focus and the emphasis and providing emerging artists a clean space to showcase their work and artistry, um, which is something that we hadn't seen much of in the city at that point in time. Yeah. Now, everything is different this year. How will the event differ from previous? Well, this year we will be virtual. So we have pre-recorded the streamed event. Typically we have about 35 artists. This year we paired it down to 20. Each artist was interviewed. We have music breaks, a mixology break. And then we also have a call to action break from one of our sponsors, New Georgia Project, um, encouraging people to register to vote and make sure they get out to vote as well. And the streaming will take place on August 1st. So unlike years in the past where we were able to come together, um, usually it's 800 to 1,000 people. We recorded it and we hope just as many, if not more, take the opportunity to join and peruse the artwork. In addition, we have an online marketplace this year, um, which is a new component, but maybe something that we can keep going. And so the artwork can be purchased from anywhere. Hmm. Would you talk about the attendees who get to be in person at the gallery? How are they selected? This year, the only in-person people at the gallery were the host, the interviewers, and the artist. So prior years, it's a ticketed event, um, also acting as a fundraiser for youth artist programming. But this year, we didn't have any physical attendees outside of <laughs> the necessary group. Um, and even while in the gallery, if you weren't currently being recorded, it was required that you have a mask on. And on what virtual platform will you showcase the artist's work? You can purchase the work from the marketplace via the website, which is articulateatl.org. The event will be streamed from the website as well, so at articulateatl.org. Danielle, you are one of the 2020 artists showcasing your work on the live stream. I read that you feel working on each piece is a form of meditation where you spend countless hours defining the tiniest details. How would you describe the kind of artwork you create? So the type of artwork that I do um, involves using a technique called stippling or pointillism, which is just a bunch of dots using either a pen, um, pencil, or a paintbrush. And you basically just sit there and make these dots that ultimately creates this larger image, but the entire thing is done out of dots. And so this technique, it's, it's very, I'd say close to me, just because it is a form of meditation, just sitting there tapping a pen or pencil uh, kind of calms my, my spirit, my nerves down from just day-to-day -day activities. So it started as a form of meditation and kind of evolved into something that, you know, I really enjoy doing. I love getting into the details and really pushing my boundaries as an artist to create these pieces of artwork that become more realistic in a sense. So you work from a basic design and fill in with dots or do the dots come first? Sometimes I do the dots first. Sometimes I kind of um, sketch out a design, but usually I will, I'll 
take a photograph of whatever object I'm planning to draw and I'll basically do an outline of that object on a sheet of paper and from that point on I'll, I'll just reference back to that image that I took just to kind of gauge the contrast between the light areas and the, the darker areas to create a more realistic view of that object. Your degree was in interior design. What made you turn to creating art full-time? So I started just doing art back in in high school. And then um, my art teacher, George Galbraith, which is Isohei's husband, he um, kind of, you know, told me about SCAD, which is where I graduated. And from there, I've always had a passion for interior design. So I kind of just chose to follow that for my degree. And I still work in interior design today, but a year after graduating, I kind of felt like there was something missing just my day-to-day life. And so that's whenever I decided to go back to kind of where it started and started drawing more and I started stippling again. And so it kind of reinvigorated that passion that I I first developed uh, for art. Hmm. Were there any other aspects of interior design that informed your painting? Yes. So with interior design, the part that I usually work with, it's very technical. I deal with a lot of um, technical drawings, floor plans, and things like that, and which that's pretty much the the aspect that I enjoy the most about stippling is being able to be very technical and precise with each dot to create those details that just looking at an object in real life, you might not have noticed, but I'm able to have that translate into my drawings to make them more interesting to the eye. Fascinating stuff. So, hey, How will viewers be able to ask questions of the artists on the virtual platform chat function? Yes, we're really excited about the inclusion of the chat, but through the website, you'll have the opportunity to type into the chat. All artists are available during the stream. And so we're imagining in this new space, in this new world, as the artist pre-recorded video is shown as a part of the streaming that interested parties can engage with the artist in that way. The artist's contact information as far as website or Instagram page will also be a part of the screen stream at that point. So just kind of acting as an additional information point for the viewer. And so we hope these conversations occur during the stream and also hopefully continue afterwards. Hmm. Speaking of Instagram, Danielle, your Hardened series is displayed on Instagram. What inspired that work? So this particular series, um, I've kind of been dabbling on it, or it's been in my mind for about a year now. I kind of wanted to incorporate the strength, but the flowing movement of liquid metal in that reflective value that you get whenever it kind of hardens over an object. But the the personal aspect and the the figures behind those objects came from a more personal experience that not only me, but a lot of people go through with just, you know, how society views you and how heartbreak 
or trials and tribulations and different pains that you go through in life kind of hardens who you become in the future and how it changes you and how it can fortify those strengths within you. Will that series be part of the upcoming show? Yes, it will. I'm listening to you talk, and it's also intriguing not only to learn about your creative process, but after hearing about how you are attracted to technique, this all comes together on all different levels with the metal and and the materials and your styles. It's really all quite advanced. (laughs) Thank you. How has it been for you as an artist since the pandemic hit? I feel like it's been kind of a blessing. I know that, you know, might not be the best way to to phrase it, but although I I still have my, um, my job as an interior designer, I've been able to have more time to my art by having everything being shut down, uh, limited, you know, interaction with everybody else. So I've gotten more time just to spend on, you know, creating various pieces of arts and really developing the concept behind uh, my Harden series. And so it's it's helped me as an artist kind of t- tune in and re-reform those finer aspects of why I became an artist and, and where I hope to be in the, in the future. You know, visual artists have an advantage, I think, during COVID that actors and musicians do not in that they need an audience to complete their art. And While visual artists also need an audience, you do have an advantage with being able to display your work virtually. I guess, is that what you meant by the blessing in disguise? Yes. And, you know, big thanks to Articulate for, you know, allowing me to be a part of the, the virtual exhibit this year. Because normally, you know, we would go to display our artwork in a gallery or an exhibit. But with the pandemic, we've been limited on our, I guess, physical presence with other people that are interested in art and want to see our our, our artwork in person. So to have this platform that will allow us to not only showcase everything we've been working on in the pandemic, but also a place where we can hopefully sell some of those pieces and just get a a bigger following of people that are interested is is amazing. Oh, that is great. So is a virtual art exhibition something Articulate might incorporate into future events, even after galleries and museums reopen? I think there are components of the virtual experience that we will continue to lean into. It has been quite an experience to be able to invite those outside of the Atlanta metropolitan area to see what some of the amazing emerging artists are doing in a cultural epicenter like Atlanta. And so I don't think we'll shy away from that piece. But at the same time, it was most certainly a lot of work that had a different level of gratification 
it's just different than being in person and having a live present experience. So again, I think there are components that we'll look to incorporate because I think it has been beautiful, but there are pieces of it that we will certainly welcome with being back in the present and being able to gather and join together and feel each other's energy um, in the same room. Isohe Galbraith is the co-founder of Urban Art Expression and curator of Articulate ATL. She was joined by the artist Danielle Rideau. The virtual live art show will stream on Saturday, beginning at 7 p.m. There will be more information on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Indie folk singer Elliot Bronson is known for his own brand of Americana. Bronson worked through sadness following the end of a relationship by writing songs for his new album, Empty Spaces, when City Lights producer Ryan McFadden joined Elliot Bronson to discuss the new album, the singer began explaining what he derives from writing music. I'm not exactly sure that escape is the precise word I would use, but certainly a way of dealing with whatever came my way from a pretty young age. So more of a coping mechanism or a a processing mechanism than literally escaping because I found that within music, I actually would go into the things that I was struggling with deeper as a way of dealing with them rather than like ignoring them or pretending they didn't exist. I found it to be really healing. Um, I don't know, I guess it's basically like therapy before I had any idea what that was. So that's the real short answer to that. It's, It's served that purpose for me as a teenager when I discovered songwriting and it continues to this day to be the best way for me to process my life and anything that comes into it. And also, you know, other, other people's lives and just what I see in the world. Who were some of the artists that spoke to you as a kid with their songwriting? Well, I started out, I was a skateboard punk rock kid. That was my first foray into the music world. So I was listening to all the, like, sort of, I grew up in Baltimore and there was a lot of DC punk rock going on, like the Fugazi scene, stuff like that. And then, you know, my folks were both active in the Pentecostal church, but also somehow really into 60s um, folk music and counterculture. They grew up in that time. And so I had these sort of competing influences of gospel music and, and religion as music, but then also, you know, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Gordon Lightfoot and yeah, all kinds of stuff that was coming out in that period of time. And at some point, I formed a couple of punk bands that didn't go anywhere. And, um, but I, I always liked that, like, the, the guys making that kind of music were really trying to say something, you know, in their way. They were, they were really, it wasn't always political or social, but it was, it was meaningful. It, it, it was more meaningful than, like, what I was hearing on the radio. And that spoke to me. And so I didn't really initially want to embrace my parents' music because that's not cool. But then I started listening to it at a certain point in my late teens. And I was like, wow, these folks have a lot to say too. And this is easier. I can just play my guitar and I could be the whole band. And the portability of it, the the ease of writing a song that I could just play 
was really, really appealing. And I picked up an acoustic guitar and I found that I had a natural sort of facility for like finger style playing, like uh, Travis picking and right hand stuff. And so I just fell like really deep into this whole folk music. And then I, I never climbed out. And that's where I've been since. Would you say that punk and the DIY scene still influence you as a songwriter and a musician? Absolutely. I think in my writing, in my lifestyle, in the way I approach the quote unquote business of music, all of it is deeply influenced by that DIY style. I've always felt like an outsider. I've always felt a bit of a misfit. And I've always felt like I didn't trust the quote unquote authorities or experts to tell me how to do things. So that seeped into pretty much everything I do. And yeah, I mean, the style is different, but it's a lot of, I think that ethos is like trusting your gut and, and trusting your principles over like what you've been handed by society and by, you know, the, the people who quote unquote have made it, um, the people that other people look up to and idolize. It's like, a, there's a, there's like a heavy dose of suspicion towards that, those folks and that world in general. And although, you know, I write love songs and all kinds of things, they're still very rooted in like, well, this is how I see the world. This is the perspective that I have and, and sticking to that and really asking myself, like, is this, is this the truth for me? Or am I sort of regurgitating what I'm supposed to be doing as a folk singer, as a Americana or all country? Like, is this, you know, there are certain like cliches and there are certain tropes of that world that I definitely try to steer away from because I, I don't want to get sucked into becoming what I think other people want me to become or what I think I need to become to be more successful. So your latest album is called Empty Spaces. What inspired you to begin writing the songs that would eventually make up this album? Well, I've made no bones about the fact that this is a unabashed um, breakup record. The whole record is this one story, not necessarily in chronological order, but it has an arc to it. And it's basically my life over the last few years, it was a record I just had to write, just put myself back together. It was really a record I wrote for me. I was living in Nashville and writing. I was doing a lot of co-writing, which is a very Nashville thing to do every day, writing with a, a different person, most of whom I, I'd never met before. And we're trying to write for other people or write for country people or write for television or whatever. And then I'd go home at the end of the day and just kind of feel a little like I hadn't really done anything that really spoke to me and then I'd just sit there on my couch and I'd write one of these songs that I needed to hear. And at the end of six months or a year or so, I had a whole bunch of them. And that's what became Empty Spaces, those songs that I wrote by myself at the end of the day. Did you record this during the pandemic or was this before? We recorded before the pandemic, yes. It obviously just came out in the middle of it. Um, and I, uh, even though it certainly wasn't written about this period, there's some crossover or, or there's some, there are some songs that I, like, like there's a song, that song Empty Spaces, which is the title track, which talks about living alone. And we made this video um, of me like in a little apartment with all the, with, with half of it, like her things disappearing off the walls, but, but I never leave the apartment all day. I'm just like getting things delivered and skateboarding inside the house and all things like that. And we didn't, and, and I was actually reading in the video, the, the book, Love in the Time of Cholera. And so like all these things showed up, they were like exactly like quarantine life. And it was just kind of weird. Like it, it certainly wasn't planned, but it, it just dovetailed right into it. To me, Mountain In My Mind stands out in particular on the album for its vivid use of lyrics. Can you talk about your songwriting process and what went behind crafting the song and the melodies that we hear in it? So I'm a little bit of an odd writer. I'm sure I'm not the only person who does this, but I don't write my lyrics down on paper or I don't type them out on the computer until it's time to record the record and some producer says, hey, send me these lyrics. 
mean, the way I write is I, uh, I just kind of hold my guitar in my hand, start playing it, start singing out loud, start, you know, with like sort of pseudo, like somewhat nonsense gibberishy language until it sort of coalesces into some sort of form. And then I just kind of play with it, like I'm just in real time out loud. And I listen to it as I play it. And it's almost like a trance-like state. And sometimes I will write a whole song in one sitting without really giving it much thought. And the one you mentioned was certainly that sort of song. I, I wrote it. It's a really short song. It's about a minute and a half long. I wrote it. I think I turned my voice recorder on my phone and just sang it start to finish without really even editing it. And, and I just was like, that's an interesting, weird song. It doesn't have a chorus. I do this strange thing in the middle of it where I slow down the time. I just found myself going around town or being in my car play, I'm gonna listen back to that voice memo I made. I found it really like comforting to me for some reason. And I thought like, can I put this on the record? It doesn't even feel like a full song, but uh, something was telling me that it, it needed to be there. I basically tried to recreate in the studio what I did on my phone. I mean, we just set up one mic. I played the song about four or five times. We got the best take. And didn't touch it, you know, just threw it on the record. While the rest of the record's more produced, there's this one little moment, minute and a half, this strange song that just came out of me one day. There's a mountain in my mind When I sit all alone, I can see her And she talks to me sometimes When I know that I know I really Lately I'm not living right I get hung up on things that don't matter But there's a pathway to the sky Like a bridge or a prayer or a ladder What role do sadness and anger play in your song Good For You? I feel like throughout the song there's a push and pull between the two different emotions that we hear. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what I was going for so i'm a i'm a meditator and i'm into buddhism especially but eastern philosophy and i one of my teachers uh, said something interesting it stuck with me which was that when we're angry a lot of times there's like some unfelt sadness and when we're sad there's sometimes some unfelt anger like it's almost like we jump to one extreme to avoid the other one and then he suggested like try to feel them at the same time and it wasn't that i was taking that advice into my songwriting but i noticed that when I try to write about emotions, you know, I end up in these ambiguous places a lot because emotions are not clear. It's really easy to write a black and white song, but that's not how the world is and that's not how we feel. So I really did try to capture the, the moment, take a photo of the, of the feeling. And the feeling was anger and sadness at the same time. And if I left the sadness out, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been true. And if I left the anger out, it wouldn't have been true. <laughs> places that we don't really have good language for. I think that's what's great about music and, and also any good art is that it points to things that we all can recognize and that are universal, 
but that we don't always notice because we don't have words for them. So it, it almost like exists in our world, but it's invisible. And then someone, an artist goes, but look at this, it's been right here the whole time. And then if it's done well enough, then other people will go, wow, I see it now too. I didn't see it before, but now I see it. What do you think it is about music that makes it so cathartic in nature? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. That's one of the sort of mysteries of being human, but it's definitely the case that humans have made art and especially music in the hardest of times. You know, you think about the American experience of slavery in the South mixed with poverty in Appalachia and, 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 the, and these worlds coming together, you know, the European world and African world, people really struggling and, and, the, and the music of that struggle coming together and making blues and country and, and rock and roll and jazz, like, it's that it, it it came directly out of like pain and hardship and uh, so that's not an answer as to why but it it is seems to be undeniable that that is the role that music has played for a long long time. Let's talk about the track Atlanta. What's the story behind the song? Yeah, well, I moved to Atlanta. I think it was like '05 and lived there for 15 years and. Um, I grew up in Baltimore and I, I wrote a lot of songs about Baltimore because I've, I had this sort of complicated relationship with where I'm from and all kinds of things. Um, and I just found myself writing songs about it because I, I think I write songs about things that I'm trying to understand. You know, I don't write songs about things that I get. I write songs about things that I want to get and helps me sort through it. So I'd lived in Atlanta for 15 years and I kept trying to write a song about it because I felt like this seems important, this place that I now call home and I've adopted and, and feel like I'm put down roots. And I just, no matter what I tried, I just didn't feel like I genuine or like it was working. And so a couple years ago, I moved to Nashville and I wasn't there for a month before I sat down on the couch and started singing this song. And it's, it's, it was odd because I, I had this little fragment of a lyric where I wanted to say um, the promise is broken and an accent she's spoken. And I thought, I just like the language of that was really interesting. A lot of times the way words sound will pull a song out of me just because there's something rhythmic and like powerful about it. So this spoken broken thing just was kicking around in my mind. And I was trying to write the song about a girl and I tried and tried and tried and it wasn't working. And then, so one morning I just, I pulled it up, I picked up my guitar and I did the, I know, promise is broken and the accent I spoke in. And then like, oh, I was like, oh, that's the song. That's what I'm trying to sing about. I'm trying to sing about me moving to the South. When I moved down here, I wasn't much more than a kid. With promises broken and an accent I spoke in. That I thought I had And I got a place On Avery Street With a girl I barely knew In the seminary down the road So singing this song out loud and just crafting it. And I wrote the, I wrote the whole song Atlanta about my experience of moving to Atlanta and then, and then leaving Atlanta. Uh, just little vignettes about you know, my life, working in a coffee shop and uh, meeting the girl and struggling and getting engaged and then getting unengaged and all in like a very little window of a song. How would you say that Atlanta has influenced you as a songwriter and a musician? Well, it certainly influenced my life. I remember coming down to Atlanta and, and playing Eddie's Attic 
when I was like 20 because I was doing this tour of like little tiny coffee shops. I was like being a musician, you know, and I was like driving around in my car, playing coffee shops in the South. And I, I signed up for an Eddie's Attic open mic Monday night, which by the way, if, uh, you know, if anyone listening doesn't know, like that's not that uncommon. People would come from all over the country to play Eddie's Attic and the open mic and the shootout, which, which is uh, the, the open mic is a contest and it's just, the people come from all over to play this contest. So every Monday there's like 20 or so artists there, everybody plays a couple songs. And then at the end they bring back three to come back up and, and then out of those three, there's one winner. And then out, so it's like a big tournament and ends up with one winner every Monday. And then every six months, those winners will face off in another tournament. And then there's one winner for two winners a year or the shootout. And like, you know, people like John Mayer won the shootout. Um, anyway, the first time I came to Atlanta, I, I played in Monday night and I happened to win um, the Monday night. And then I got into the shootout and I got to the very last round and then I lost in the last round. But then I ended up forming a band later on and we did win the shootout. Um, so we, I, I redeemed myself, but I'm at my point to answer your question is that that culture that existed and still exists around Eddie Zag, the songwriter culture of folks, you know, getting together and, and sharing stories and songs and, and really in a listening room environment where people are really reverent about the song. And uh, it, it's more about the song than the artist. It's more about the song than, than the scene or, you know, the style. It's, it's, it's more about the substance. So I was already leaning that way, but, but to come into a community where that was being celebrated and, and championed, that, that helped me thrive. And so that I started a band and then eventually became a solo artist again and developed my following at Eddie's and started, you know, selling, doing my own shows and then selling out one night and then selling out two nights. And so, I mean, Atlanta has been like so instrumental in, in me growing and developing as an artist. How would you say that your music has evolved over time? I know that you've been doing this for a while now. Well, I think it's gotten better. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always want to be getting better. I feel like if I'm not improving, then I'm doing something wrong. So for me, that's like a motivating driving force is to like create more meaningful, more powerful uh, art that speaks to me. And then I, I have this belief, this sort of faith that if it speaks to me, then other people will also resonate with it, um, if it truly does, honestly. so. Um, but it's it's also gone through phases, you know. I started out right punk rock stuff first, and then very folky, and then I did this sort of acoustic, quirky pop thing for a while, which taught me a lot about melody and harmony, and it gave me a lot of tools. But then I eventually returned back to my roots, back to more of the folk. But then it got a bit more infused with like the Americana, all country kind of thing, and a little rootsier. And then this newest record, I, I kind of, I'd done the pedal steel and train beats. And I thought, you know, like, like I just want to make something a little different. I want to make something that sounds fresh and, and it sounds like me. It doesn't sound like my influences as much. So this new record, I think, I have a hard time telling you exactly the genre. Of course, it's folky. Of course, it's acoustic. Of course, it's songwriter. But I feel like it's way more melodic. And I'm trying things with doubling my voice and lots of harmonies and some interesting arrangement choices that I've never done before. So I still have all of those influences and elements in what I do. But now I, uh, you know, I feel like now I'm, I'm making something that is not reinventing the wheel or breaking the mold in any kind of crazy way. But I feel like it, it is more fresh. And I feel like it is something a bit more novel. Indie folk singer Elliot Bronson. His new album is titled Empty Spaces. In a moment, the role of an underground radio station during social and political upheaval. 
You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Journalist and producer Bill Lichtenstein got his start in radio as a 14-year-old phone volunteer at WBCN in Boston in 1970. Now, the award-winning director has a documentary about that very station called WBCN and the American Revolution. The film looks at the history of the underground radio station in Boston during the 1960s and 70s. When Bill Lichtenstein joined me last September on a tour stop in Atlanta, I asked him about the backstory of WBCN. It's a radio station that emerged at a critical time in history. It was the late 60s, and there was a transition from kind of the 60s as what was going on in San Francisco, which was peace and love and LSD, to a much more politicized 1960s. And a lot of that happened in Boston, where there were a couple hundred thousand college students and high school students. And WBCN became, in a way, the social media of that community, and then it spread uh, over nationally. It was it was also a time when media was, for the first time, accessible to people in ways that they could make their own media. And people have noted that, in a way, this was kind of the birth of indie media, that a group of college kids and a 50,000-watt radio station could uh, create social change. Yeah. And boy, did they ever at this one. Ray Rebin, the founder of WBCN, was an interesting guy. Tell us why he bought the station and his attitude toward programming. It's a great untold story. Ray Reepin, within a few years of coming to Boston as a Harvard Law student, ended up starting the first rock club outside of California. It was on the East Coast, uh, the Boston Tea Party in 1967, and then this a radio station, WBCN, and then the Boston Phoenix, which for many years remained uh, the underground alternative press in Boston. But it happened because he was asked as a favor to sign a lease. He was an attorney doing grad work at Harvard Law School. He was asked to sign a lease on an abandoned uh, temple in the south end of Boston for uh, some people who said they had funding from the Ford Foundation to open a Boston chapter of Andy Warhol's Filmmakers Co-op. And so he dutifully went there and signed the lease and put up $5,000 of his own money and then found out 
that the Ford Foundation was not going to fund this project. Oops. And he uh, opened this rock club, which brought bands to Boston that are just breathtaking for $3 a ticket to Who and Led Zeppelin. And then he got the idea of pairing them so you would see Rasan Roland Kirk and The Who or these remarkable mixes of artists. And a lot of the blues artists who previously had not played for young audiences, B.B. King and Muddy Waters and... And uh, at some point he realized that this was so successful as a club that you couldn't hear any of this music on the radio anywhere. And so that gave him the idea for this radio station. And it started out overnight. The way he got access to a radio station was he found a FM station. FM had just started and was sort of questionable whether it was going to make it. <laughs> the advantage was you didn't have static, so a lot of classical music stations began to use it. But he found a station that was about to go bankrupt and uh, asked if he could buy the overnight hours from 12 midnight to 6 in the morning. And very quickly, they were making more money in that time slot than the rest of the day, and the station went 24 hours. Students stay up late or never go to sleep. Well, that, that, that was the great revelation, of course, and <laughs> to that audience, it was perfect timing. What distinguished WBCN style, and, and why did it make such an immediate impact? Well, I think there were two things. I think the fact that uh, there were a couple of other stations around the country at that time that got the idea of playing rock and roll on FM. K-San in San Francisco was the first, and... Uh, station in New York, but they hired professional radio announcers, and so it was, you know, different music, but still had a very professional feel to it. Ray was committed to creating a sound on his radio station that was not professional. He wanted college kids who would talk in a conversational way. They would only run eight commercials an hour, and they would pick and choose who could advertise on the station. They only wanted sort of hip local uh, shops and, <laughs> and good uh, products. And the other thing was that, that Tommy Hadges says in the film, which really, I think, is what broke the mold for media of that uh, time and set the mold for what came after, is that they began to see radio not so much as a performance, but a relationship with the listeners. Bill, that jumped out at me watching the film because I thought, aha, this was the precursor to NPR, the relationship with the listeners. In, in a way, it was public media. Before NPR was in existence, uh, before PBS, you know, formally yeah. was in existence, and this idea that you would serve, you know, in, in a lot of ways it was what the FCC had in mind when they were licensing uh, radio and TV stations to serve the community uh, here you could call up the station and oftentimes you were just a button push away from going on the air and talking about what it was ever concerning you. And yet it needs to be said this was not an, uh, you know, a low wattage station in the basement of some. This was a 50,000 watt commercial station that reached all through New England and had a huge audience. They were a commune of equals and irreverence. I love that description of the staff and I couldn't help but notice immediately how very DJ-centric this station was. I mean, it was the cult of personality that Mao talked about. I think one of the things that comes across in the film, although it's not evident at first glance, is that the people who were successful on that radio station who were in the film talking about their experience along with a lot of archival material – 
uh, got to that point in their career because they were just great storytellers. And so you had people on the air who could really communicate well with people, not necessarily with, with beautifully formed professional radio voices as Top 40 had, but there were people who just knew how to communicate. And I think listeners responded to that. Oh, but those Top 40 radio voices were so strange and, I don't know, stylized, I guess, would be a kind way of putting it. Someone in the film says... Anarchy is inherent in rock, and creating chaos was part of the station's style. Politics were very much in the forefront at WBCN. Would you talk about their radical stance? I mean, their motto was the American Revolution. Yeah. No, it came at a time when I think many people felt we were on the verge of a revolution in this country. And and it did play out in many ways. There were dramatic changes, which uh, you can see through the prism of the station in uh, the second wave of feminism, gay and lesbian rights, etc. But rock and roll uh, infused the politics of the 60s with this very powerful engine. And BCN, uh, WBCN, by playing this music... Uh, helped fuel that. Uh, the person who said it was uh, David Hull, who's a bass player who actually toured with Aerosmith and you know, c- commented on the extent to which BCN helped drive a lot of the politics of that era, even just by the music they were playing. So as politics really became central to the program format, there's an amazing part of the film that talks about the staff occupying, was it the administration building at Harvard? At Harvard, yeah. Okay, would you tell us about that chapter? This was, what we tried to do with the film was overlay the important uh, moments from the 60s, both in Boston and nationally. So uh, the assassination of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy, the Harvard strike, Kent State, and put them into context vis-a-vis the station. In Boston, there was a decision made. Well, one of the first things that happened that that really came out of Boston was the connection between uh, universities and the government's uh, war machine, as people said in those days, and corporations who were then making money developing weapons, that, that for the first time there was this sort of unholy triad and we sort of understand that now, but in those days, it wasn't really known, and universities hadn't served that role before. And in this one scene during the occupation of the president of Harvard's, or the dean of Harvard's office, uh, they went through files and found these, you know, connections between Henry Kissinger and the CIA and Harvard, while Harvard was saying, we have no connection to the government, uh, and they published them all, and it became a rather... Uh, important moment. One of the things, and I've not circled back with some of the SDS people to see if they were aware of this, but the police coming onto campus at Harvard was an important historical moment, and people always attributed it to the uh, not great judgment of of the president of Harvard to bring the police onto campus. But we found a news report on on the uh, nightly news on NBC where the president of Harvard said specifically they brought the police on campus because they were going through the filing cabinets, which was attributed back to, you know, the people from this radio station. So it had a very dramatic impact. It was a marvelous part. And you have to give credit to the member of SDS 
who, um, with the group inside the dean's office looking down in the courtyard um, as they're all smoking dope constantly, and he says, stop it. This is going to become the story if we don't do something that will make a difference. And that's when they went into the files. That was Danny Schechter, who, who passed away a couple of years ago, but was the news dissector uh, on BCN. In fact, he worked in Atlanta for a while uh, at CNN. He was Sandy Freeman when she had a talk show. He was her first producer and, and was in Atlanta for a number of years. But yes, that's the kind of um, moment. And, and also for young people to look back and know before WikiLeaks and before Twitter, there were the similar kinds of moments. Of- Actually taking cardboard and paper files in a backpack. Staking them out and it, then publishing them the next day, yeah. It was fantastic. Toward the end of the 20th century, the station began to lose steam. What contributed to the decline and eventual shutdown in 2009? Sure. Um, you know, the radio station became very successful, but even uh, through this period, and, and the the time frame uh, it goes up to uh, Nixon's resignation. So it, t- the film focuses on 68 to 1974, even though the station was becoming extremely successful, it maintained its sort of radical uh, approach to, to news and music and, and the culture. Um, after Nixon's resignation, as things generally changed in society, the station started to sort of soften on these issues, you know, started to become more concerned with ratings. and But through the 70s, it maintained a very – it was one of the first – uh, media outlets really focus on apartheid and, and efforts to end apartheid. Eventually, it just became a, a very successful commercial rock station. Uh, and the spirit of the early days, you know, sort of lived on. But In the early days of NPR, yes. don't you think? Yeah. Well, there were things that happened. This wasn't in the film, but, but it was something in, in an early cut where the Who had dropped by the day that Tommy, the album, came out. And they were asking about the cover, and Peter Townsend was commenting on the cover. And somebody said, you know, it doesn't sound very dramatic these days. I mean, you turn on NPR all the time. You hear groups talking about their albums, their music. He said, but in those days, you just never heard this. So Bruce Springsteen stopping by at age 22 for his first radio interview ever and saying hi to his mom and then says, you know, let's play a little music. And, you know, you might hear that on the radio these days, but in those days it just was not heard or done, and this really broke that mold. We've talked a lot about Harvard, but there were 84 colleges and universities in the immediate Boston area. This was not just Harvard. This was student culture, youth culture, really unifying around the anti-war cause, social justice, civil rights. That part of it is quite marvelous. And as someone in the film notes, it may have been you, Bill, this was the soundtrack of our lives. Well, it's an important observation you make because one of the... the, uh, I was going to say target, one, one, one of the groups that we hope this film reaches, and it has, is young people, to see how media can create social change and how it was done then. And there's a comment after uh, the, the, the first large anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, the idea for those began in Boston, and Boston had the largest one on that first day, October in 69. 
and the station was very involved with that. They paid for a peace sign to be skywritten over the city. And Norm Weiner, who was the program director, makes a comment that I see on the faces of young people watching the film sort of resonates. And he said, you know, being so young, and it, it was very hard to get, you know, your parents or your boss or your teachers to listen to what you thought was important. But what we learned was by coming together and speaking in one voice that we were able to have this you know, large impact. And I think the other lesson of the film is the extent to which culture ties in, the music, art, uh, all of that. And I think, you know, for young people, the lesson is sitting home and clicking like on Facebook and wondering why things aren't changing, that there's sort of more to building, you know, a movement or a, a culture around change. And a lot changed in a very short time and without cell phones and Twitter and all these very powerful tools that people have now. Bill Lichtenstein is the director and producer of the documentary WBCN and the American Revolution. Virtual screenings and information on how to watch the film on your TV can be found at theamericanrevolution.fm slash virtual screening. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning, WABE will bring you live coverage from Ebenezer Baptist Church, a celebration of life honoring Congressman John Lewis will begin Thursday at 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.